Right. Hello, everyone. Um, welcome back to Fazlift's podcast, part episode three. Uh, just on my own today. Now, the uh, the theme of today is bro science things, bro science techniques uh, over the years that I've used over the years, which have actually worked. Um, I thought it'd be quite a fun topic because uh, everyone is so evidence based these days. Uh, uh, it seems like you have to provide a study for just basic stuff, um, and I think we're we're beginning to see a bit of a backlash towards that. Thankfully, but I think I think real life experience is is definitely still very very valuable. Um, and like anything, there's swings and roundabouts. So it seems like we're coming. Hopefully, we're coming back towards the middle. Um, to give you an example of that, just, just to go off on a bit of a tangent, um, there, was a, there was a guy I was helping on Facebook and he was talking about how his lower back gets uh, sore from doing Romanian deadlifts. And uh, it was quite clear to see that the reason he was getting sore was he was just taking his back through some, he was just flexing his back a lot, his lower back, when he was uh, doing the Romanian deadlifts. And to anyone who's done Romanian deadlifts before, you know that's not really the idea. Um, you're supposed to um, flex at the, the hip. Um, so uh, he was just arching and rounding his lower back quite a lot. And I, I pointed that out. And so, someone else came on and asked me if I've got a study to support the fact that uh, flexing and arching a muscle. <laughs> so basically, a study to say that flexing and relaxing a muscle uh, causes it to fatigue. <laughs> like, holy shit, if you need a study for that, have you ever stepped foot in the gym? I mean... When I contract and relax and underload my chest, it does tend to get sore. Um, if you don't know that, then I, it's, I really don't know if you've even stepped foot in the gym. Um, so that was that was sort of a, a very stark example of what I'm talking about. But in any case, um, today is going to be talking about yeah, sort of um, sort of stuff which is viewed as bro science um, by some people, and, but it's actually for me these are things which have worked. Uh, and I'm I'm going to sort of cover various reasons why I think they might have worked um, and give my perspective. And really, when we think about it, a lot of the stuff which is considered to be bro science is usually just stuff or it's usually rather not bro science, but it's usually stuff which is outside the realm of science in, the, in that it's not been studied yet in detail. It's, you've got to remember the, the field of research for hypertrophy is still relatively new. Uh, we've not really been like when I first started training, there was a lot of research on sports science, you know, to do with performance, but there was very little to do with actual hypertrophy. Um, very little. It was mostly to do with um, strength increases, speed increases, stuff like that. So the whole field of hypertrophy research is still relatively new. It probably, probably really kicked off about 2010 with uh, Brad Schoenfeld's um, just sort of seminal study where he identified the three modes of hypertrophy. Um, but in any case, the first one I'm going to talk about is something to do with training. And uh, something which has worked for me over the years, uh, which I continue to come back to every now and again, and whenever I do, it works really, really, really well. And that is using very, very short rest periods and very, very, a very dense amount of work. So usually a lot of work with very short rest periods. So to give you an idea of uh, what I'm talking about, you're th looking at things like Looking at a rough structure of probably as little as 30 seconds rest between sets and very, very high volume. So generally, these sets usually aren't taken to failure, at least at least the first few aren't. So 
usually with this method, I would do something like five sets of an exercise, um, upward of probably 40 sets a week. So if we take chess, for example, I might have, I might have, say, let's see, two, uh, something like eight different exercises across the week, and I'll usually split that up into two parts. So four exercises one day, four exercises the other, um, tending to target different areas uh, using different uh, exercises, different compounds, different isolations. Uh, but the commonality would be if, I, if I'm on the bench press, for example, um, it would be the same weight, do a set, usually about 10 reps, put the bar down, rest just a very, very brief 30 seconds, and then go again. Um, and that is pretty fatiguing. That's pretty tiring. You get a lot of work in. It's a lot of density. Now, in terms of what the science says about this at the moment, the science, first of all, science says that in terms of sets, you know, effective sets per week, you're, there's, a, there's a few sort of, you know, identify a few ways in which the, the, the current research says that this is wrong, basically, or it's not optimal, uh, maybe not wrong. Uh, but not optimal. Firstly, the uh, firstly, the science says that rest periods tend to be better, slightly longer rest periods tend to be better. Um, this allows for more dissipation of fatigue. Because of that, you know, the idea is you can do more work. Um, so that's just one thing. Uh, second thing is the volume it tends to run pretty high with this approach. So what we've seen is usually, uh, and excluding some of Brad's recent work, uh, we've seen roughly 10 to 20 sets seems to be about right for most people. Um, so you've got something like one to three minute, rest, well, two, two to three minutes rest periods uh, as being optimal, something like 10 to 20 sets, uh, occasionally delving a little higher than that as well. And also you tend to be looking at sets which are, um, tend to be looking at overall volume, that, sorry, sorry, tend to be looking at sets which are, um, a little bit closer to failure. Um, so certainly if you're doing a set of five sets of 10 with 30 seconds rest periods, the first set's gonna be not really that close to failure. But the, the fatigue will accumulate pretty quickly. So those are a few ways in which the approach is deemed to be not optimal by today's standards. Um, so, but that's something that I've had a lot of luck with. Now, I wanna put forward a theory um, and a little bit of history as to why I feel that this is actually a pretty good approach and for what populations. Now, back when I first started looking to bodybuilding, and this was when I, a few years after I injured my hamstring. Uh, so we're talking around about 2009, 2010. I contacted a guy in America, I think he's American or Canadian, he's called Dr. Casey Butt. Now, for those of you who are a little bit older, <laughs> like me, you might recognize the name Dr. Casey Butt because he is the guy who put forward the ideas about uh, muscular potential. And he based that on the size of your wrists. <clears throat> so he wrote a whole thesis about it and a very, very intelligent guy. And his idea was that the, the larger your wrists, the larger, the more muscle mass you're capable of having, or capable of creating while you're natty. Uh, and he had a formula for this and, and really this is where the whole fat-free mass index thing came from and uh, you know people were getting slammed for being over 25 on the scale and the you know and they, they weren't natty and stuff like that so that's where all that originated from i i personally i thought that was pretty good research uh, i thought it got a really bad backlash from that because you just had a bunch of like <laughs> you had a bunch of dweebs online who were just saying yeah it's a load of rubbish look at this guy he's over 25 or, or this guy or 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 trying to out people you know by saying that they were over 25 uh, on the scale, therefore they, they, they must not be natty. And you know, where really it was just, 
irrelevant to these guys who were saying it because they were just, you know, they weighed nothing more than 135 pounds or whatever. Um, but, you know, dweeb's going to dweeb. So he got a lot of backlash from that. But what led him to that and sort of – so he focused quite a lot on the size of someone's joints. That was, you know, a lot of his, his thing was related to that. Um, so what he kind of moved on to was training styles related to people who have smaller wrists. And his theory, he, he, he wrote articles and articles and articles on this, but roughly, loosely, his theory was this, that if you've got a large joint structure, your joints are not going to limit you in a training session. You're able to impose the type of effective stress onto your muscles without being limited by your joints. So this whole two to four minutes, certain level of intensity, certain proximity to failure, you're able to actually do that. You're able to take your muscles to that point because you're not limited by your joints. And this is a very, very important caveat in the current research. And it, there's, there's a subtlety here, which people, a lot of people just don't seem to even consider. But the current research is based upon this idea that you are able to take your muscles to that point. However, Dr. Casey Butts' theory here was that people who have smaller joint structures, while they may perform the same work and while they may be limited by the same reps, they're not limited by the same structures. So someone who's heavily, who has a heavy bone structure is able to take their muscles to that point and able to fatigue their muscles to that point. Um, so the volume that they're doing is effective for them. Someone with a smaller bone structure won't be able to take their muscles to that point of fatigue. They'll be fatigued by a combination of their muscles and their joints. Therefore, they won't be getting that effective amount of volume in. So if you're putting yourself through, say, a series of 10 to, 12, 10 to 20 sets per week, but you've got a really small bone structure, those 10 to 20 sets may be limited by your joint structure, may be limited by your structural integrity rather than your muscles. Now, that's a massive, massive blow to the current research because the current research doesn't even consider that as a factor. The current research just assumes that everyone is going to, you know, and, and, and why would it? Because, you know, you, you're comparing 10 to 20 sets through a range of different people. You're not considering the fact that 10 to 20 sets for a person with a heavy bone structure means something different to 10 to 20 sets of someone with a light bone structure. And for, for people who are unfamiliar with this concept, you may just think I'm just talking absolute nonsense now. So what Casey Butt theorized was that for someone with a lighter bone structure, they necessarily need modalities of training in which they are not let down by their joints. Now this would necessitate weights in the percentage range which are light enough to, um, uh, to for your most for your joints basically to be able to see their way through a workout. So <clears throat> basically, lower percentages of your one rep max. Now, how do you make lower percentage of your one rep max more effective? You make them more effective by using shorter rest periods, potentially using higher rep ranges, using more intensity techniques like drop sets, supersets, all that kind of stuff. Your work has to be more dense. The the, the, the reoccurring theme here is that you have to do work which is uh, generally higher rep and shorter rest period work type of work, which would necessitate also more volume to make up the type of stress necessary to induce muscular adaptions. Now, none of this that I've said here is related at all 
to mechanical tension or to metabolic fatigue. That those two concepts, which everyone is so massively focused on right now, become completely irrelevant in this way of thinking. We're not considering that. What we're actually saying is a person whose joints are light enough that they they can't get away with a lot of heavy work, they're not going to be able to impose the type of mechanical tension on their muscles because they'll be limited by their joints, their structural integrity. So they're not going to be able to do that. So it becomes a mute point because you might say, well, okay, Faz, so the guy with the light bone structure, he's going to focus on more metabolic work. Listen, that it's not really about that. We can call it, you can call it that if you want to. But what I'm talking about basically is stressing the muscle. So if we just forget those concepts, forget the concepts for a while of metabolic tension, forget the concepts of mechanical tension, forget about all that kind of stuff for a while. Let's just boil it down to its basics. How do you stress the muscle enough to grow? Now, if you have a light bone structure, you stress enough a muscle enough to grow by not being limited by the joints. If you're a heavy bone structure, you can do whatever the fuck you like. And uh, this, would, uh, this would make sense um, why heavy-duty training tends to work for the larger, more structurally sound guys. Now, that was true back in Dorian's day. That was true back in Mike Mentor's day. It's true today with guys like Jordan Peters. Those are thickly, heavily muscled guys. Now, they're able to lift massive loads because they're not limited by their joint structure. And in doing so, they become beacons of this approach works. Now, I'm not saying the approach doesn't work, but I'm saying at the higher levels, there could be a better way. Now, let's consider for a second the types of populations which would want to pay attention to this. So, potentially older populations, <clears throat> potentially people with lighter bone structures, people who've done a lot of heavy training in the past, but now their joints are, are letting them down. If you fit into any one of those categories, you know, this could potentially be something to look into. Now, I, I think it's potentially an option for a lot of people because whether you've got a heavy bone structure or a light bone structure, and bear in mind, this is not just, um, this changes depending on upper body or lower body and different areas of the body as well. So it's not uniform, but you know, so you may find that you have a heavy upper body structure and a lighter lower body structure, for example. Uh, so you may need higher volumes and more intensity techniques in your lower body. Um, but, but in any case, so the reason why this concept is so important is because if you have a high, those, those people with a high, with a heavy, heavy bone structure, they can do both styles of training and get away with it and prosper from it. Someone with a lighter bone structure, they can't do both styles of training. They'll do, they'll, by necessity, they'll do one and do a limited amount of the other. So they'll be able to do the lighter stuff and do limited amounts of the heavy stuff. Now, at the advanced level, that's probably not even going to work. So someone with a lighter bone structure, they'll hit a wall at that stage. Now, I think you can go pretty far with each approach, but to get to your absolute maximum limit, I think you have to specialize. And I think you have to be aware of these things as, as a concept. So me, for example, I got pretty strong. I've got a very, very light bone structure. When, I was, when I'm at my leanest, my wrists measure less than six inches uh, around. That's very, very light bone structure. Um, so I think the average is something like seven inches and heavy structures are like eight inches. So my, my wrist is like less than six inches. My, my lower body is a little bit thicker. So I, that probably explains why I, I can go a little bit heavier with the lower body stuff. Um, but my, my upper body was always limited. 
Um, and it, you know, funnily enough, it did respond well to much, uh, much higher volumes and density of work. So, yeah, so it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because, you know, if we, if we look at, say, some of the populations who insist that lower volumes and heavier work is what they need, and higher volumes will overtrain them. You know, who says that? Hard gainers say that, right? So a hard gainer, those are usually typified by people with lighter bone structures. This is, you know, going by the definition of hard gainer given by Stuma Robert. Um, it's someone with a light bone structure. Now, his idea was that they need less work. Uh, <laughs> that never played out for me. Like, I was, I was pro hard gainer for a long time. I even wrote for the magazine. But that never played out for me. I actually was stuck on a 90 kilo bench for years. It was embarrassing, frankly. I, comp I competed with a 90 kilo bench for like three years. It was absolutely embarrassing. My squat and my deadlift were, were far better. And what worked for me in the end, because I remember being told on that forum, hey, Faz, you've you reached your genetic limit. I'm like, holy shit, if that's my genetic limit, then what are, <laughs> what are my genetics like? Um, but I, you know, I just I found a way, and that way was through higher and higher volumes with lower and lower percentages of work. Uh, and that worked for me because it allowed me to stress the muscles to the point where I was able to build the mass to support a three-plate bench and eventually a four-plate bench. So like, I wouldn't have done that with lower volumes. So the irony is the populations of people who actually think, well, I've got a light bone structure, I'm a hard gainer, I shouldn't do much work because I get overtrained. The irony is that they may actually need more work than someone who's like a Dorian Yates or a Mike Mentor and has thick enough joints that they're able to withstand the loads. Uh, their, joint, their structural integrity is able to withstand the loads which, are, which put the necessary stress on the muscles. If you don't have that joint integrity, then you need to work with a lighter percentage um, of your one at max and, and by necessity do more work because of that. So, yeah, interesting stuff. I personally think... I think, I think there's a lot more to research in terms of muscular hypertrophy. Um, and I think Brad uh, and everyone you know, who's doing the current research, they're, they're doing a great job. But I, I think no one's considering this. Like no one. Like no one is considering this whatsoever as, as anything even on the horizon to do with training. Absolutely no one that I've, that I've read or seen or heard of even considers this to be a factor. And I think that's completely wrong. I think 15 years ago, Dr. Casey identified these as factors. And I think this, this is an area that needs to be studied more because this is a massive, massive missing link in the research. If you don't have the structural integrity to be able to put your muscles through a hard enough workout that they adapt and grow, then you need to work with a lighter percentage a light of, of the load, a lighter load in general, and do more volume and work. And by necessity, if we take that even further and extrapolate that outwards, the larger you get, you're still going to be limited by your joint structure. So the larger you get, the lighter relative intensity you need to be, you need to be doing. Um, you know, so I, there's, there's a massive gap in the research. Uh, and I think that needs to be, I think it needs to be addressed. I mean, I might even... Um, considered writing to to brad about this and just saying to him hey would you like to do this I, you don't have to credit me or anything but just do the research i'd love to know if i was to do something like that i'd, I'd put together four groups um two high intensity groups two low intensity groups set it up somehow so the volume's equated because you don't want to take that out as a factor and the two and then within those two groups there'd be people with 
eight inch wrists and above and people with six inch wrists and below and just see what happens. Uh, well, you know, some, that's, that's just off the top of my head, but set it up in some way that you can test joint integrity as a factor for training modalities. Uh, I think that has to be done and it's the next step in the, in the research. But uh, yeah, there you go. That's, that's my first example of something which is considered to be breast science now, uh, mainly because we're limited by the research. But uh, whenever I've done that approach, it's, um, it's been effective. Um, right, so the next topic, we're gonna talk about fasting. Now, when, I mean, when I'm talking about fasting, I'm talking about extended fasts. Usually something that's done once, once every week or once every two weeks. So you're looking at 24 hour fast, stuff like that. I'm not talking about the type of Martin Birkin fast where you're basically doing a slightly shortened eating window every day. That's not the type of thing I'm talking about here. I'm talking about true long fasts, you know. Now, <coughs> people have said that this, like I know uh, John Meadows has said that it's for increasing insulin sensitivity. Um, and I know there's other people who, who do things like low carb days or no carb days on a bulk to increase insulin sensitivity. And um, I'm just going to start by saying flat out, I think that's fucking stupid. Um, I don't think insulin sensitivity changes occur on such an acute basis. I think they're far more related to body fat percentage and genetic factors. So I think it's fucking moronic, uh, frankly, where people say I'm doing a fast or a low carb day for insulin sensitivity reset purposes. I think that's just fucking nonsense. Um, however, what I do, what I do, is I do a 20 to 24 hour fast once a week. Now, subjectively, this makes me feel better. Uh, it improves, almost immediately improves my subjective well-being, almost immediately improves my heart rate, uh, improves a lot of factors which I think, um, which just generally make me feel better. And uh, it, it, before anyone says that I'm doing this for, you know, it works for cutting and all that, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not losing weight. I'm actually looking to gain weight. Uh, I'm bulking right now. So what I do is I average out the calories over the course of the week. So whatever I don't eat on a, on a fasting day. So I'll talk you through kind of what I do. Uh, at the moment, I'm currently taking in about four, four to four, four and a half thousand calories every day. And on a Sunday, I take in about a thousand calories. Now, what that does is it takes my weekly average down to roughly three and a half to four thousand calories, depending on where we are. So... On average, I'm eating the amount of calories needed to gain weight. On average, I'm gaining weight. But the Sunday is when I fast, and I just compensate by eating more throughout the rest of the week. I don't think that's, that's a big issue in regards to bulking. I think that's fine. You're not going to lose any muscle during that time period, but you are going to feel better. Uh, I also don't think it's down to insulin sensitivity, but what it does is it helps to clear out a lot of the water. You tend to get a lot of water bloat. tends to help your digestion. Um, I've done little videos about this before I actually done one on my YouTube channel about fasting for digestion and it was a big deal especially coming out of the competition they used to get stomach pains from eating so much and all that so for me uh, this has been a big help it's helped my digestion helps relieve a lot of the water bloat that I get from eating all the carbs uh, I'm up to like five or six hundred grams of carbs a day now so for me this is a this is something I do for my health um, now, the reason I've included it in a bro science video is simply for the fact that people say this or like low carb days related to sensitivity, but um, like it's not, it's just, it's, it's not. Uh, I think uh, it was uh, Eric Helms who said it recently, like if you're 24, 25 years old, you're bodybuilding lean, you're training four to six times a week 
and you're genetically not predisposed to carrying a lot of fat, you are not going to have any problems with insulin sensitivity. You know, it's just like, I think his exact words were, give me a break. Uh, and, I, and I believe that as well. I, in the past, in the recent past, I've been a bit more open to considering the idea that this could, you know, uh, be beneficial for that reason. But now I just, I just think it's fucking stupid. Um, so I do the fasting because it makes me feel better. Um, and the reasons why it makes me feel better, it just basically reduces bloat and helps my digestion. And that helps other factors in my body. It makes me feel better, helps my heart rate. Uh, but that's something that I do, which uh, is, is beneficial, but it's certainly not related to insulin sensitivity. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I thought that was a, a fun couple of things to talk about. In regards to the training one, I'm going to be going back to that style of training and sort of experimenting with it a little bit. Um, I did a workout this morning, very, very high volume chest and back workout where I, I alternated chest and back exercises and I, I rested 30 seconds between each set. Uh, I did roughly 20 sets for chest, 20 sets of back, and uh, I'll be repeating that workout later in the week. The weights are light, but pretty much almost every exercise by the final set I was going to failure uh, or at least failing some reps um, that tends to from what I recall of this style of training that tends to improve very quickly because work capacity comes up very quickly um, that's what I found at least I found the first few weeks of this routine I suppose like any routine uh, your body adapts to it very quickly because you, your body just adapting to the work capacity to be able to do the routine particularly if you're going up in volume and up in density um, but once those initial adaptions have, have happened, then you start to see the true progress. So currently I was probably more limited by my cardiovascular system and the muscle congestion and the glycogen in my muscles. So I'll get a quick increase over the next couple of weeks of those factors, which will probably show a quick increase in my muscle size because I'll be holding on to more glycogen as, a, as an adaptive response. And then <clears throat> from there, we should see some good progress. Uh, I'll tell you, yeah, I've, I, like I said, I've had, I've always had good results with this style of trading. It's been, uh, it's been good, but, but like any, like any meathead, I sort of forget about it and, and I end up, uh, just wanting to lift heavy and then lift heavy, get injured and then forget about it for another couple of years. So hopefully I'm at the stage now where I'm uh, a little more intelligent and, uh, I remember, uh, you know, some of the things that worked. So we will see, we will see. Um, I'm going to be doing this hopefully for the next four or five months at least while I'm bulking and then I'll probably carry this on into competition prep as well after that time period so within nine months I will, I'll be oh, nine or ten months I'll be competing again so assuming we have a four-month prep we're looking at about uh, five months of bulking left so yeah road to 100 kilos awaits and hopefully with this style of training that'll be a good amount of muscle I, I don't think I've ever actually bulked with this style of training I always cut which was a mistake. I think I should have attempted the bulk as well. Uh, but I, you know, weirdly enough, every single time I got stronger cutting down, uh, using this approach, so that, that says something about the efficacy of the routine, the, how powerful it is. Um, but yeah, right. I am going to call it there. Thank you very much for tuning in. That was fast lifts episode three. And, uh, the next one I'm recording, I'm hopefully I'm getting on a friend of mine who's going to be talking about eating disorders. Um, so eating disorders in in bodybuilding and eating disorders in general. Um, I always wanted this podcast to be a little bit more related to just general bodybuilding, holistic bodybuilding. So uh, not just training and diet, um, just all the factors surrounding it. And, and eating disorders are a part of bodybuilding, uh, whether we like it or not. Um, 
I mean, they're a part of life, really, aren't they? So, uh, fortunately, I've never, I've never uh, been prone to them myself, but it, it, they, they certainly are a part and parcel of, of what we do. So, it'll be nice to get him on and him to talk about um, some of those things. Anyway, I'm going to call it there. Right, everyone, thank you very much for tuning in, and see you next time.